So there's something else that's happening today called the Super Bowl. I know uh, many of you uh, don't want to pay much attention to it, of course, but I want to talk about football at least for uh, one moment. A couple years ago, I read uh, a book by Michael Olesker um, called uh, The Colts Baltimore. And the subtitle of this book uh, really said, uh, summarized the book really well. And the subtitle was A City and Its Love Affair with the Colts or with football. And it chronicled uh, just how passionate uh, the city of Baltimore was uh, when it came to football and their particular team, uh, the Baltimore Colts. And I've often told people, if you really want to understand Baltimore and sort of the fabric of this city when it comes to sports and other things, you ought to read that book by Michael Olesker because it enlightens a lot of things. Um, Whenever I think about that book, I think about a documentary that really goes hand in hand with it. It was done by ESPN. Uh, in one of their 30 for 30 documentaries. And the, the documentary was called The Band That Would Not Die. And uh, what it chronicles is the Baltimore Colts marching band that even though that team left Baltimore, the band said, we are going to live on. And so they snuck into the facility, they stole their uniforms, and they continued to play uh, for decades and decades after the Baltimore Colts uh, left our city. Um, Both the book and the documentary have sad chapters to them as well uh, because they talk about just how painful it was for Baltimore to lose the Colts to Indianapolis. So I want you to imagine for a second that you lived in 1984 and that your most prized possession that you have is your Baltimore Colts sweatshirt. And all of a sudden, you go from loving that sweatshirt and loving that logo to almost hating it because of what had just happened. You go from loving that sweatshirt maybe to to wanting to burn that sweatshirt because I think many people did that sort of thing uh, when the team left. No matter what, uh, no matter how much you loved them, your affections had now changed on a dime because of your circumstances. And so your attitude was out with the old and in with the new. Now, when we come to Paul's letter in Ephesians, I think that's sort of what he's getting at in this section. Something has happened to us that reorients everything about us. It reorients our affections. And so what that means is now it's time to be out with the old and in with the new. Our passage is from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading uh, from verses 17 uh, through the end of the chapter Uh, through uh, verse 32. So this is God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness 
and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your Word this morning. Help us to understand what it meant to those first hearers, but also uh, what it means to us, what it means for us to be confronted by your truth, what it means for us to live a life that is characterized by the gospel. Father, we confess that our hearts are often darkened, and we need your truth to shine the light. So we pray that you would shine the light of your truth in our hearts now. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've heard of um, Marie Kondo before. Uh, I haven't heard much about Marie Kondo, but what I have learned is that she is a very popular uh, professional organizer that I guess you can hire to come and organize not just your home, but to organize your life. And, and one of the things that she says is that you should only hold on to things that spark joy. Everything else should, you should get rid of. And so what I think she says is, is kind of interesting because what she's arguing is that often we have the tendency to hold on to things in our lives that actually work against our own joy and work against our own well-being. Well, I actually think that the Apostle Paul is saying that very thing in this passage. He said it long before Marie Kondo said it. Because what Paul is doing here is he is writing to the church in Ephesus to these this young believers, these young believers in this young church in Ephesus. And uh, we've been spending some time looking in this letter. We've seen that the theme of this letter is that in Christ you are rich. In Christ you are rich. All of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms are yours in Jesus. The inheritance that belongs to Jesus Christ because of his, his obedience to God, that inheritance is yours, and no one can take it away. And what Paul articulates beautifully is that not only do you have all these spiritual blessings, not only do you have the inheritance, but the love of God that is beyond imagination is yours in Christ Jesus. You are rich is what Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus. But then he transitions and he says, you are rich, now you need to start living like it. You need to start living like it. Now it's time to, to let go of the old ways of thinking and living. Now it is time to embrace your new identity with Jesus. In short, it is time to be out with the old and in with the new. 
think Paul establishes the out with the old in verses 17 to 24, the first half of our passage, and he sums it up in verse 22 like this. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Paul says something really interesting in that first verse of our section. He says uh, that we should stop living as the Gentiles do. Now, that means something different to us probably than what it meant in Paul's day, but it's Paul's way of saying that there is a secular way of thinking about life, Uh, There's a secular way of living in this world, and that is uh, essentially living in a way as if God doesn't exist, as if His presence doesn't really mean anything. At other points, it's called worldly thinking. Other instances, it's called living or thinking according to the pattern of this world that is around us. It's about living and thinking just like the prevailing culture that surrounds us. Proverbs tells us that it feels right, that there is a way that seems right to a man, because that is the way that is around us all day, every day. But in the end, Proverbs tells us, that way leads to destruction. So here's what Paul does, is he unmasks it for what it really is. He unmasks the prevailing world around us for what it really is. He says their thinking is utterly futile, verse 17. He says that what they think is understanding is actually ignorance. It is darkened, verse 18. He says this way of thinking is alienated from God. It is cut off from the true source of life, and those who live according to this pattern, well, their hearts, who they are, have become calloused. They are hard. They are impure. They have desires like all of us do, but their desires, they are disoriented. They are aimed in all of the wrong directions. At the end of the day, Paul's establishing that this way of life is a way of life that is built on falsehood. It is built, foundationally built, on a lie. It is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. I think we have to recognize that this wasn't just the pattern and makeup of Paul's world. He might have called it a Gentile way of thinking. He might have called it something different, but this pattern, this way of living is not unique to us because it's the pattern and the makeup of our world today, just as it was in Paul's day. And what that means is this, that every day you and I, we interact with wonderful people and maybe not so wonderful people from time to time, right? But either way, some of those people are kind, they're gracious, they're compassionate, they're far more moral than we often tend to be at times. But then there's some people that we run into, they're greedy, they're selfish, they're deceitful. But either way, whatever their makeup, their life isn't built on the truth of God that is made manifest in Jesus. And because of that, their life, their foundation is built on falsehood. It's built on a lie. And so Paul, establishing this, then has some pretty strong words for these Christians in Ephesus. I often wonder what they must have thought when they were reading these words from Paul. He says to them, you, you are different. 
You're different than the prevailing culture around you. You have, the, the lie has been exposed to you. You've seen it for, for what it is. The truth of God for you has exposed the lies of the world that is around us. You've, you've come to realize that the way of the world doesn't actually provide for you the joy that it promises. And so your eyes have been opened. Your mind has been illuminated. Your heart in the gospel has been softened and transformed. But here's what Paul's saying, but you're not living like it. You're not living like it. You're still living as if that lie is actually the truth. You know the truth, but you're still living in falsehood. And so what Paul says is you got to stop living this way. You've got to stop living this way. Live according to the truth of God that has been revealed to your hearts. Because that truth of God, if you really are living it out, that truth of God will make you distinct from everything around you. And yet what Paul's saying is you look just like everybody else. You see the way they are. You know that their lives are built on falsehood, and yet you are still living like them. So guess what? It's time to be out with the old. It's time to get rid of the old. Have you ever uh, grabbed your phone and, and turned on the GPS, right? And I'm not talking driving GPS, walking GPS. Maybe you're in a strange city or you're in a strange neighborhood and uh, you, gotta, you gotta sort of figure out where you're going and you wanna walk there. And so that little icon shows up on your GPS and then there's the blue line. And all you gotta do is somehow follow the blue line. It seems so simple, right? Uh, but what often happens to me is I can, I can recognize that I'm on the right road, but I can never quite tell what that little compass is orienting me to. So I make a, I make a choice. I was like, well, I'm gonna start walking in this direction and hope my little icon follows that little blue line. But inevitably what happens? We choose poorly. We walk in the wrong direction. And so what do we do? We reorient our direction and start walking in the right way. See, that's Paul's point. You've been walk, you, you, you once walked in this way. You once walked in the way of falsehood. Now it is time to reorient your lives. Now it's time to, to turn around. Now it's time to walk in a different direction. And that's what he talks about in the second half of our passage. Out with the old, the second half, in with the new. Verses 25 to 32. Verse 24 uh, sums it up. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul, Paul's really concerned here about the demonstration of a life that is lived in this direction and in this way. And so what he begins to do is he talks about areas in our life where the new, the new in us is most evidenced. And so if you've rejected the falsehood, if you've embraced the new, then this is where you can find proof of it. This is where the evidence will show up. This is where proof of that new life will be uh, most manifest. And so he starts out by talking about our anger. Verse 26, he says that the proof of this new life will show up in our anger and in the ways that we get angry. He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
Now, now Paul doesn't say much here, but I think these short words are tremendously helpful for the way we think about anger. And we see it all the time. We see it everywhere. And we all get angry, right? Probably most of us have gotten angry, maybe in little ways or big ways, even just today. All you need to think about is traffic, right? And you recognize that we all have the propensity to get angry. It is a regular human emotion. And even as you look at the character of God, you see that God himself gets angry. That's sort of the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that he releases his anger not on us, but on his very own son, Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is reminding us here is that what we get angry at And what we do with our anger is sometimes the thing that gets us into trouble. After all, there is a righteous way to be angry and an unrighteous way to be angry. Righteous anger mimics the anger of God. It responds to injustice. It gets angry at the same things that God gets angry about. And as I look at my own personal anger, I'd like to think that most of our, my, my anger is a righteous anger. But if I'm honest, it isn't. My, my anger often looks a lot different. It's unrighteous anger. And I think most of us traffic in that sort of area most of our lives. I get more angry about Uh, the fact that I can't control all the things that exist in my life, not just traffic, but all sorts of things. I get angry because I'm not God and because people aren't treating me like God. And that's the sort of unrighteous anger that Paul talks about. He wants us to have righteous anger that mimics the anger of God, but Christians often, what, we get lost in unrighteous anger. We should get more angry about the righteous sort of thing but instead we struggle with unrighteous anger. And so Paul wants us to avoid that sin, saying that is proof of this new life. He then says that proof will show up in our speech. He talks about this in verse uh, 25 and 29. He says this in verse 29. Don't miss this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. If you look all throughout the scriptures, God talks a lot about our speech. And Christ says something tremendously profound in his teachings in the gospel. He says that what comes out of our mouth with our speech is the actual true reflection of what is in our hearts. So you want to know what's in your heart? You want to know what what thoughts and desires are prevailing there? then look at your speech. Look at the things that you talk about. And so then Paul comes along and he says this, that we should make sure that our speech is only ever about building up others. It is only always encouraging. It is only always constructive rather than destructive. It is steeped in the truth of God. He's essentially saying make sure that your speech always flows from the grace that you've received in Jesus and only adds to that grace being manifested in the life of other people. Paul says that's proof of this new way of living. So he talks about our anger. He talks about our speech. Then in verse 28, he says the proof will show up in our work. Listen to this verse. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, you might not be tempted to rush out and rob a bank, right, or to become a professional thief, but you ought to look closer at Paul's words here and what he's saying. He's saying that we ought to instead work hard, that, 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 that evidence of this new life is working hard, but what he says is it's working hard not for yourself, but for others. It's working hard so that you can give it all away. Now, you want to start looking different in our culture. Think about that. You want to start looking different in our culture, then start to or, or actively choose not to live according to the consumer materialistic worldview that seems to be around all of us every day, to not, in effect, drink that sort of Kool-Aid that is the message that we see, receive each day. So Paul steps in and he says, work hard, you ought to work hard, but work hard so you can give it all away. And I certainly think that if we begin to do that as God's people, we will really start to look different. It will raise lots and lots of eyebrows. So Paul talks about our anger, he talks about our speech, talks about our work. Then he talks about how we relate to the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, he talks about grieving the Holy Spirit with our lives. And a lot of people have written a lot about this and sort of what it means, and I think we tend to probably make it a bit more complex than it really is. Uh, really all Paul's getting at is that he re- the recognition that our sinful behavior grieves the heart of God our Savior. It grieves his heart. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, that grief doesn't come from God as a judge, right? Because we don't have to fear the condemnation of God as a judge. That has been taken away from us in Christ Jesus. But what Paul is talking about is the grief that a father feels for a son or a daughter who is walking down the wrong path. So what Paul says is living according to the old actually grieves the heart of God. It grieves the heart of our Father. And so instead, what we ought to do is to live as if our relationship with God is the most important relationship in our life, because at the end of the day, it is. It is the most important relationship in our life. So Paul is saying, value the gospel, value all that God has done for you, value the love that you've received in Him, and in that valuing, do nothing that would grieve the heart of God who gave everything for you. Finally, he finishes this section saying that the proof of the new isn't found in bitterness or unrighteous anger or slander or malice, Instead, it is founded in tender-hearted kindness and forgiveness. Paul's saying, after all, don't forget that God in Christ has forgiven you. Your sins, they've been taken care of. The condemnation, it has been lifted. You are loved. You are rich. Now, I have to believe that Paul's words were, were um, a bit ground-shaking 
for those first Christians in, in the church in Ephesus. They were a bit disorienting. They were a bit sort of earth-shattering. They probably gulped a little bit when they read these words, and so they meant something significant to them. But friends, that doesn't mean they don't mean something to us as well. The same struggles that they dealt with, living in light of the new, are the same struggles that you and I deal with today. How do we get rid of the old? How do we embrace the new? And so Paul's words are powerful for us as well. Stop living according to the pattern of this world. Be distinct. Be unique. Be different. Show the world by your life that there is a better, more joyful way to live. Show the world all about the truth that is found in Christ Jesus, the life that is only found in him. Let's pray.